3: Hello and welcome to the Game Day podcast from Talk Sport. I'm Alex Crook alongside me to look back on a fascinating weekend at the former England winger Trevor Sinclair and the Daily Mirror's assistant editor Darren Lewis. Another record breaking moment for Ronaldo. Everton's relegation fears deepen. King Kai lifts some of the gloom at Chelsea and a potentially pivotal win for Leeds. Plus, Hodgson's Hornets finally find their sting. Two goal Tony gets the bees buzzing and a very emotional moment at West Ham. Ben Rana comes
4: in off the left and Yarmolenko finds the corner with an improvised effort and he falls to the turf. An emotional return to the London
3: Stadium for Andre Yarmolenko. All that on the podcast that, like CR7, isn't afraid to call itself the GOAT. This is Game Day from TalkSport. This is Game Day. And a very warm welcome to Trevor Sinclair and to Darren Lewis. How are we?
2: Very well, especially after this weekend of football. It just gets better and better the closer we get to the climax. Um, And I think as far as Sunday's games are concerned, wow, what a day.
3: Yeah, what a weekend of games, talking points, fantastic goals. Uh, And that incident at West Ham as well. Andre Yarmolenko. Uh, probably wins the award from the most popular goal scorer of the season. It was a fantastic goal uh, in its own right, but the scenes that followed him bursting into tears, uh, really with the realisation uh, of what he's just done on the pitch, coupled with what's going on, of course, in his homeland. What did you make of it, Darren?
2: Yes, one of the moments of the season, because I think when he came on, uh, the round of applause he got from both sets of players... Even some of the fans had given him, the Aston Villa fans, that is not the West Ham fans, gave him a round of appreciation as well. And I think what it shows is that for a lot of football fans, uh, football isn't the be-all and end-all. They understand that how family, uh, what's going on over in Ukraine, is far bigger than the irrelevance we call football. And sometimes there are moments like today that help us to realise that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear from the West Ham manager, David Moyes, because it's obviously been a very difficult time uh, for Yarmolenko. This was the first time uh, that David Moyes felt he could put him back on the bench. Here's what he said uh, after that goal and after West Ham's victory at home to Aston
1: Villa. It was. And, uh, you know, sometimes football is a great way of uh, making football and making life change and making things look so different. But it also has a way of making you feel better for a little while. So... Malenko getting his goal today will be a great moment for him because it's been a terrible time and you look, this is the first time we've put him on the bench since you know the war started so uh, he's not felt quite right, he, he was ill actually in midweek that we couldn't take him to Seville so he uh, came on and uh, sometimes these things are written. I think for everybody it's, it's something which you know you would be emotional about because you're thinking to yourself "Is this boy's family and different People connected to him are all in Ukraine and and all the Ukrainians who are having to go through with this. So for them to turn out and play professional sport and try and perform well can't be easy for them. But uh, he made a difference today with his goal.
3: Trevor, as a former player yourself, how difficult is it to box off personal issues and go out and and do your job? I'm not saying that you've been involved in anything Mm. quite as extreme as Yama has, but that takes tremendous mental character, doesn't it?
0: It does. Um, And I was with him there. I think every West Ham fan, I think every human being was with him that seen them images, was with him um, when he was celebrating that goal. Sadly, I I lost my mum while I was playing. And the next game I played against Sunderland. And I remember celebrating a goal that I'd scored and just pointing up to the sky. And it's um, it's quite a, a poignant moment in your life, I think, as a footballer, when stuff like this goes on. You know, I remember my son being born and uh, scoring Alton Park and Michael Carrick coming over. And I think Christine Daly and we're doing the cradle, rocking the cradle celebration. Um, but I don't think anything comes close to what Andre experienced there. I mean, I, I criticised him uh, in the game against Kidderminster because I, I forget about the performance. I didn't think the effort was there. Um, but after what I'd seen, uh, shown great courage to one, get on the pitch, two, to affect the game and score um, the opening goal. And I was the first one to get on my socials and just say, you know, huge credit to you. And, you know, we all felt what he felt uh, with his celebration to, you know, people at, at home in, in Ukraine that he must be concerned and, and, and worried, mad about.
3: Football could be very tribal, Darren. It could be very uh, divisive at times. But the fact that Aston Villa fans were applauding Yarmolenko as he was celebrating that goal, I, I think speaks volumes, uh, really, of the greater good that football can do. And I know when Sam Mataface and myself were in for... Jim White and Simon Jordan, when the war was really starting uh, over in Ukraine. We spoke to uh, local politicians uh, and and we were told that actually it is a real source of comfort and a real source of inspiration. The fact that the Premier League have come together, they've shown unity, they've shown support for Ukraine with a a yellow and blue armband. I know certain clubs have turned their program covers into Ukraine flags as well. So uh, as much as Jurgen Klopp says that football is the, most important of the least important things I think it has been of great comfort and again those emotional scenes involving Yarolenko will not only uh, resonate in Ukraine they'll resonate around the world and really highlight what is going on in that part of the world at the moment
2: yeah effectively he's, he's receiving support when he goes to work essentially and and for footballers you know everything goes on but at the end of the day as Trev was saying just there and I was, I was fascinated to listen to what Trev was saying because yeah, you were giving an insight into how it must be when you go back to work after all the things you go that go on in your personal life. And, you know, the average person listening to this does his job away from the glare of 50, 60, 70,000 people every, what, twice a week for nine months of the year. But he has got to go back into the public domain and be judged. And there comes an added pressure with that. And, you know what has he been doing while he's been away? He's been frantically trying to find his family in a country that's been bombed to oblivion. So when Jürgen Klopp talks about football being the most uh, relevant of the of the least irrelevant things, he's absolutely right in some respects. Because football, when you talk about what's happening, um, you know we we have recorded this the day after a, a, a city in eastern Ukraine, Volnovakha, has been bombed just to to ashes you know you've got thousands of kids who are being orphaned in, in in ukraine you've got people leaving the country and trying to find somewhere across europe to settle you know the, the score lines today are all irrelevant in in the context of our sport we love football and we will go on to talk about football but i just think in general terms you know when a guy says you know what I couldn't care less whether my team finish in the top four or not. I need to find out if my wife is safe, my kids are safe. Imagine if any of us were in that position. Because I certainly think the Aston Villa fans could understand being in that position, the horror of being in that position. And that is probably why him coming back to us, they said, fair play, we support you. Whatever you do against us, whatever you do on the pitch, whatever your level of performance, wish you all the best and wish your family all the best because they're the most important things.
3: Yeah, and I think the most chilling quote from David Moyes was that he said that Andre's family are safe for now. And it's those final two words. This is obviously an ongoing situation, an escalating situation, and uh, great credit to Yarmolenko for managing to, as you say, go out and, and do his job, but it is a job in the in the public spotlight and I think he conducted himself brilliantly. I think football fans by and large have conducted themselves brilliantly. I covered the game between Chelsea and Newcastle. I know there were some skirmishes between the two sets of fans outside the ground. There were one or two chants inside the stadium as well that felt a little bit unpalatable uh, given the ownership of those two football clubs. But what we didn't see uh, was the mass support for Roman Abramovich that maybe. Uh, we expected and and feared in some ways. Just to uh, bring our listeners up to date with the latest on the Chelsea situation, the government have slightly relaxed that license, the special license they gave Chelsea to enable them to continue fulfilling fixtures as well. The club is put up for sale. I think they've increased the amount of money they can spend to host games from £500,000, which was unrealistic, to £900,000. They're going to have leeway as well, in terms of the away travel, which was capped at £20,000, which wouldn't have been enough to take them to Champions League away games. uh, For example, the one against Lille in the week, I think has already been funded anyway. And they've released some funds as well in terms of prize money and television revenue, which the government weren't previously going to allow Chelsea to have access to because it costs around about uh, £28 million a month in wages. And basically Chelsea said, if, if we can't have that money, then the club will fold. I'm a little bit torn on this, Darren Lewis, because I don't necessarily think that Chelsea Football Club should be punished to such an extent where the, the future of the club is in doubt because of the owner's links to Vladimir Putin. But I think there'll be fans of Portsmouth in particular who basically did go nearly bankrupt and did go into administration several times because their owner, uh, Sasha Gaidamak, and uh, one or two owners that came after him had their assets frozen they'll be questioning why they didn't get this level of support from the government. Do you understand that perspective?
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, you and I covered Portsmouth in those days together. So we know all about the background to that. And and you're absolutely right. In a way, I think Portsmouth fans would have a lot of reason to kind of suggest that there's been favouritism for the bigger names, the bigger club, the higher profile club uh, than the, the, the club that it would have been easier to... Hit with a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Set against that, all, you know, there are people I know at Chelsea, good people, people who've got nothing to do with this whole situation, who are tonight, while we record this, wondering how they're going to pay the mortgage next month, the month after that, the month after that, because they don't know if they'll have a job. So it's hard to sit here and basically say, hammer them, um, nail them. Uh, and the inconsistencies of this might make for good debate, but they're real people's lives that are being affected by this entire situation, just not just on an emotional level, but on a practical level as well, day to day.
3: Are we all a little bit complicit here, Trevor, because there have been questions asked about Roman Abramovich's relationship uh, with the Kremlin, those alleged links with Vladimir Putin almost since the day he arrived at Chelsea, and maybe in the media we've turned a blind eye to a certain extent.
2: Can I just can I just answer that on Trevor's behalf, if that's all right? Because I, I, one or two people have asked me about that today and over the last few days. And um, I, I did a show earlier b- before we recorded this, and I, I, I brought to their attention um, a piece that was in the Observer newspaper today. Of all the times that journalists had brought the concerns around Abramovich into the public domain and, and he used legality to be able to get them to back down. Um, One high profile journalist appeared on TV and set out what he saw as the situation surrounding Abramovich. Um, and, And there have been many times in over the last 15 years that issues have been raised. So I don't see our industry, to have been hypocritical around this. I think that they've had no choice but to get on with it because of the legality. But it was only once Chris Bryant in the House of Commons raised it and used parliamentary privilege to raise it that, if you like, the hair started running and and the government realised that here was a scalp, that a high-profile scalp that they could take, to suggest that they're doing more than a lot of people felt that they should. I didn't want to take over from your what, what you're saying, Trevor. I just wanted to just jump in there and and, and just clarify no, that on that, behalf of and, and the, to, our industry.
0: Yeah. And just to add on to that, you know, I mentioned on on uh, breakfast on Friday, you know, I think the Premier League uh, were in a similar situation to the media and the journalists regarding uh, the stance of Roman Abramovich and, and queries that they had. And on a legal level, he always batted them away. But, you know, I think, looking at what's gone on over the last 48 hours uh, and the last couple of weeks regarding um, Chelsea football, Club Roman Abramovich, and even over the last couple of days with uh, the amount of people that have been executed in Saudi Arabia, I think we have to look at, you know, our fit and proper tests regarding ownership of football clubs. And we have to have a real good look at ourselves and, and see if we've got any kind of morality because, if you're allowing people who've got massive wealth to own football clubs because they're bringing finances to football, then I think we might as well give up now.
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And the fit and proper person's test has not really been worth the papers written on for some time. I know the Premier League have tried to tighten it up, but I think there's still a, a lot more that can be done. I appreciate it's been quite a serious start to the podcast. We, we make no apologies for that. We are a sports radio station, but at times sports and, poli- and politics and world events do go hand in hand. And certainly when you look at Yarmolenko and you look at the Chelsea situation, I think uh, this weekend is certainly one of those on the pitch for Chelsea, Darren. It wasn't a particularly inspiring performance. Only two shots on target. I think that the second of them was the goal in the 89th minute, brilliantly taken by Kai Havertz. Fantastic touch to pluck the ball from Jorginho out the sky, finished it uh, really well as well. But did their performance suggest that the off-field situation is proving a distraction for Thomas Tuchel and his players I thought Thomas Tuchel was quite emotional with his reaction at full time
2: yeah I led my match report on it uh, because uh, he he ran down the touch I'd not seen this side of Thomas Tuchel before went halfway down the touchline fist clenched facing the fans in the east stand screaming uh, uh, his triumph if you like and um, yeah, the, the, this, uh, I wrote in my match report that this was almost a release after a really emotional draining week for him. And that goal, I have it, so many big, big goals for Chelsea since he arrived at the club, Champions League, World Club Cup. This was another huge goal from him. But I think that I, I I wasn't unimpressed by the performance. I think as far as Newcastle were concerned, they're a better side than they were. And, you know, you just said about the, the serious start to the show. So I don't I don't want to go too much back into that because there will be time for us to go into more detail around Newcastle. But you know, after the match, Eddie Howe was asked about the, the Newcastle ownership. And he he tried to suggest that he only wanted to talk about the football. And for once, the press corps continued and pushed it. It said, well, you can't just sit there and say that you only want to talk about the football because we don't. And there are bigger issues at play. Right now, the climate is one where people want to talk about ownership and face up to the issues that around ownership in this country he he stuck to his guns but there is no doubt about the fact that it's Saudi money that has bought the players that has improved Newcastle to such a level that they've only been beaten today's defeat was their first in 10 games they are a better side for the money that they spent in the transfer window and I think those questions are going to continue over the coming months.
3: Yeah, I agree. And uh, I'd imagine that Eddie Howe is finding every press conference quite difficult at, at the moment. It, it was a, a rare defeat, as you say, for Newcastle. It ended at a nine-match unbeaten run, their best run of form since 2011 in the top flight. I, I thought Dan Byrne was excellent. It was about lucky that maybe you can hold him partly responsible for the goal because he did lose Havertz for that one instant. Uh, six goals in seven games now for Kai Havertz. Uh, very quickly on this game, Trevor: is he underappreciated, Havertz?
0: Um Listen, I think if you're a top player, you train well and you force a manager to put you in the team. He's not doing that enough, obviously, because he's not played enough games for Chelsea, in my opinion. But when he is playing, he's, he's proven his worth. Um It's quite ironic because I don't think Dan Byrne would have let him go if he didn't take an, a nasty whack in the head. I thought that was a red card. Uh And on top of that, you know, you look at the incident um with Trevor Chalabar and Jacob Murphy. I mean, it's it's as clear as day that that is a penalty. VAR, plenty of time to look at it. Again, I don't want to complain about you know officials, but it's an absolute joke what's going on at the minute. It was 100% penalty. Not only did he grab him twice around the neck or around the, the shirt, he, he almost took his shirt off the front of him, but he also, when he did make the challenge, he didn't make contact with the ball and took um, Murphy down. So again, yeah, complaining about, um, about VAR and the officials, but I thought, listen, I agree with Darren. I think they're a better team. Um, Newcastle, and, and that was a very, very hard earned win, but quite fortuitous for Chelsea. Here's Ronaldo, though, 25 yards to oh! goal! Oh, what a way
4: to equal the record! Brilliant strike from one of the world's best ever players. Harry Kane for Tottenham at the Stretford end takes on David De Gea, puffs out his chest runs up, smashes it into the goal. Here's Sancho into the area, looking for Ronaldo. Ronaldo's free and he's going to slam it under the goalkeeper and in. And Manchester United, with their first attack since their last goal, have scored through Cristiano Ronaldo again. Here's Son, edge of the area, needs to play it to Reguilon. Went a little bit late and Romero's in the centre, takes a deflection, goes beyond his own goalkeeper by Harry Maguire, and I think that's an own goal. It's 2-2. Manchester United with a corner in front of the Stretford end. Deliver the ball in towards Ronaldo with a header. They've scored for the corner now. And Cristiano Ronaldo gets his 59th career hat-trick. And he may well have won the game for Manchester United again.
0: You all right, Trev? I'm laughing at you. You're absolutely buzzing for this, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> it's nice to be able to talk about
3: Manchester United in positive terms for once. They beat Tottenham by three goals to two. It was a really entertaining game. I think Trevor, we've...
2: Trevor, do you want to go make a cup of tea, mate, while he talks about Man United?
3: <laughs> well, listen, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the the floor to you, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, Trevor. Um, a new record: the most number of goals scored by a FIFA recognised player, eight hundred and seven. A brilliant hat-trick. I mean, the the goal from long range was sensational. Excellent team move uh, tapping in from just on the edge of the six-yard box. And the header to win the game, that was Mm. some header. That was the Ronaldo of old. Does it paper over the cracks for Manchester United or is this a a significant step in the right direction? I guess we'll probably only know the answer to that uh, by the time they finish their match against Atletico Madrid in the Champions League on Tuesday.
0: Yeah, I suspect the former, um, but incredible, undeniable. Um, one of the best goal scorers to ever play the game not just in this era any era the first goal everyone's blaming loris or everyone's blaming Dyer. i thought Dyer did very well he got his distances right he gave uh, ronaldo half the goal to aim for loris should have been in that position to you know comfortably catch it it wasn't right in the top corner didn't move his feet and you know Dyer gets a lot of criticism but it's a great strike uh, the second one like you said cookie great move um, good to see uh, Sancho starting to really have a, a decent effect at Manchester United good ball in and the work's been done you know he sensed the danger he sensed the urgency where he needs to be to get his tap in and he's outwitted the defender again Ronaldo got himself into a position where it looks like it's an easy tapping, but the work's been done the IQ's there um, and that's why he's got so many goals and then the third goal you know it's, it's his marking move you know he, he kind of little bit of a uh, hustle and bustle in the box and then they all split and he ends up being on his own and the ball's perfect and he, he leaps great for it. And the contact is absolutely sublime and yeah, undeniable talent. Um, you know, it's unfortunate um, he was injured for the Manchester derby because I'm sure he, he will have criticism for not being at that game, but we've got to remember he's 37 years old injuries and little, little um, slight injuries take a long time and be- I'm, I'm, I'm happen more often And uh, it was just unfortunate that he's missed that game, but he's come back with a bang. And uh, yeah, I think it's papering over the cracks, but fantastic talent, you know, undeniable.
3: Still a bit sceptical about that injury for the Manchester derby. I guess we'll only find out in the fullness of time. You think he's
0: thrown it in, Crookie? He didn't want to sit on the bench? Mm, Potentially.
3: (laughs) And and I think he looked like a player who had a point to prove to Ralph Rangnick. He's the second leading scorer in the Premier League. I think, again, it... (laughs) It does shoot down people that say Ronaldo is a problem for Manchester United. I've been critical of his lack of movement at times, but I think actually if you just find a way to set the team out to play to his strengths, he will score goals. There's no question about that. What did you make of uh, Romero, Darren, and his reaction screaming in the face of Harry Maguire uh, after Tottenham equalised and then actually being partly culpable for the winner? Was that karma?
2: Uh, yeah, you could say that or you could say it's a lack of focus uh, because uh, there were. I think after they went 2-1 up, there were those p- images of uh, Conte on the sidelines pointing to his temples with both hands and saying, focus, focus. But Tottenham's problem all season has been a lack of focus and that's why they're going to rip that defence up in the summer and bring in at least two new uh, players to reinforce that team because at, at the back, including the goalkeeper as well, I'm not that sold on Larice anymore. He's, had a, he's been a wonderful servant for the football club, but I think his reactions aren't as as sharp as they once were. If you were to choose the better of the two goalkeepers in North London right now, you'd go for Aaron Ramsdale. Oh, don't say that because we won't really end up uh, uh, That's him. not
3: and what about Tottenham now uh, Trevor in terms of their top four aspirations are they still part of the conversation or do you make it a straight shootout between Manchester United and Arsenal Who we're going to talk about in a minute
0: no I think they've got to be part of the conversation because you look at the amount of games they've played they've only played 27 games so they've got two games in hand on Manchester United five points behind so they're certainly in the conversation Um, just going back to Romero immaturity you know, it's as simple as that. He's not a grown man, to, a grown, experienced man uh, in the Premier League to, to, to understand that, you know, you don't go in there. You go in at the end of the game or at the end of the season and he's just gone too soon and kind of mugged himself off a little bit. But again, Tottenham have got a lot of work to do. I agree with Darren. I, f- I feel, uh, I thought f- I last season, but he, he has recouped himself. Uh, but I thought last season, um, Laurie, Hugo Loris uh, was a busted flush. I thought he'd had his best football They've stuck with him. He has improved. But again, the, the game against Manchester United, you know, I, I was just went through the detail with the 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 um the die giving him half the goal and didn't move himself across. So yeah, I think that's got to change. But and with Darren, I think they got they need to change some of them defenders if they want to compete. And if they do change them defenders and you know possibly get a creative midfielder, they're gonna compete because you've got that forward line and they'll always score goals as they did against Manchester United.
3: Well, that win for United did put some pressure on Arsenal, but they responded in kind on Sunday with a 2-0 victory against Leicester. Five straight wins for Arsenal. They host Liverpool in one of their games in hand in midweek. And in truth, Darren Lewis, apart from one stunning save from Aaron Ramsdale, who we've already alluded to, it was a fairly routine win. And I guess it speaks volumes about where Arsenal are as a club at this moment in time. That Emil Smith-Rowe, back from COVID, couldn't get into the team.
2: Yeah, they've had their nightmare, but they're through it now. The rebuilding process is over. Uh, They've held their nerve over Aubameyang Uh, defensively. I think the clean sheet was the most important aspect about today uh, because that's where they've needed to tighten up. I was at Watford last weekend where they scored three times, but they let in two sloppy goals. They made sure that wasn't the case against a Leicester side that had won their previous four games. But I now think that fourth place is there for the taking but for Arsenal, um, there are a group of kids that have been through adversity together. I think the two pivotal games for them this season were against Wolves. Tough games when Wolves are at their best defensively. And uh, they came through those and now they look as though they've only got themselves to blame now if they don't do it.
3: Yeah, more slack defending from Leicester for both goals, actually. Uh, both stemming from set pieces. Thomas Partey allowed a free header for the first goal. And then giving away a penalty, a bit of a clumsy handball by Sainzhu. Took a long time, actually, for VAR to come to what I felt was the right decision. It certainly brushed his fingertips. I think it was an instinctive reaction. He tried to move his hand out of the way, uh, but did so too late. Lacazette, Trevor, scoring from the penalty spot. He's out of contract in the summer. Mm. Doesn't score that many goals, but I think he plays quite a pivotal role now for Arsenal in terms of dropping deep into midfield and freeing up space for runners. And his leadership qualities, since taking the armband have also come to the fore. Is there a case for Arsenal to try and keep him beyond the end of the
0: season? 100%, they should keep him. Now, whether they can get him on a a year rolling contract, and whilst he's still able to lead and play like he's playing and be a focal point and be a, a, a great professional for the young players within that squad to look up to, the way that he conducts himself as a man, a mature man, he trains well, he puts everything out there on the field um, and goals is just part of his job. You know, if I think especially if you're a number nine up there playing as a, a, a focal point on your own, you know, so a lot of the time you're getting the ball, receiving the ball with a back to feet, back to goal. You're laying it back the way you're facing. It's runners that are going to be getting the opportunities. Now you can join in on the second phase and all the rest of it. And when the ball goes wide, you can, I just think he's very, very integral to that young group of players. Um, I don't think, well, obviously He's their player, so there's not, not going to be any kind of transfer fee. There might be a big signing-on fee, but it's a no-brainer. Keep him. Even if you're going to bring somebody else in, you know, take the pressure off him. He can, you know, they can dovetail them two players, let him get used to the lay of the land in the Premier League and, and uh, Arsenal. But yeah, no, I think it's, uh, listen, Arteta will be the only man that can say 100%. But from what I see from the outside as a former player, as a, as a, as, a, as somebody that's involved in Elite football in this country, I think you've got to
2: keep like. Trev, if you if you if you were him, yeah, and they you know they're going to bring in a couple of new players. Do you want to play every week next season, or are you happy to be on the bench and maybe come on to the last twenty minutes, play one game every in every three?
0: I think once you start getting north of thirty, you're quite happy to play two in three, or maybe every other game, um, especially with the amount of games that Arsenal will be expected to play if they do make that top four. You know, they've got the two domestic cup competitions, the league, and then obviously Champions League, Europa, whatever it's going to be. So I think there's going to be enough games to spread around. Um, it's a massive club. It's a huge club. You know, it's, it's, it's football royalty when you talk about top clubs in in, in the Premier League. I think Lacazette like would like to stay. It's a fantastic city to live in. Um, the lads appreciate him and love him, look up to him. So, yeah, no, I think he should stay. I think if I was in his position, I'd want to stay. Um, and I'd want to make sure that... The boys continue their journey of improving and uh, and maybe start thinking about, you know, looking at what next for Lacazette because, you know, he's not getting any younger. He's still got a lot to offer on the pitch, but this might be the time for him to start thinking about what his role is next. And for me, the way he comes across, he looks like somebody that could certainly go into coaching or management or, you know, a leadership kind of role at football clubs.
4: This is a safety announcement. It is recommended you stay seated, you keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle. The game day ride is about to go on its final spin.
1: Here comes Salah, left foot, smashes it down the middle and Liverpool lead by two goals for nil. And we have a magnificent title race on our hands. Brentford are going to move up to 30 points,
4: Burnley desperate situation now manchester united with a corner in front of the strepford end deliver the ball in towards ronaldo with a header they've scored for the corner now and cristiano ronaldo gets his 59th career hat-trick as this tumultuous unpredictable race for fourth place Looks set to go to the wire. It's a glorious goal, it's Chelsea 1, Newcastle nil. It's Kai Havertz who celebrates at the shed end. And there it goes. Listen to that roar of relief at Ellen Road. Boy, did they need it. It's Leeds 2, Norwich 1. And what a moment. Andre Yarmolenko is the goalscorer. He's front and centre of the match programme this afternoon. Everton 0, Wolves 1. Frank Lampard said before this game it didn't
1: feel like Everton were dealing with a relegation crisis. He may well revise that now.
2: This is the home banker.
1: Not going that way right now. 38 gone, Southampton nil, Watford two. Arsenal two, Leicester nil, Alexandria Lacazette firing it into the top left-hand corner from the penalty spot.
3: Some huge results. And I think we have to start by talking about Everton. Four defeats in a row now for Frank Lampard's side. They went down 1-0, at home to Wolverhampton Wanderers. Probably ironic it was Liverpool fan Connor Cody who scored the winner and inflicted the damage. I don't think too many of us believe that we will be talking seriously when Lampard took that job about relegation for Everton because they have players like Dominic Calvert-Lewin uh, coming back from injury. It's not working, Darren, is it? And I, I've looked at their fixtures between now and the end of the season. You can't see where the wins are coming from.
2: At Everton, I think it's the worst £600 million I've ever seen spent in football <laughs> in twenty over 20 years of covering football. I've never seen a club spend so much money and look worse for spending it. Um, I don't necessarily lay the blame for where they are at Frank Lampard's door. They've got a bloated squad with players in the comfort zone, happy to take the money, but don't want to put in enough of a shift. Defensively, they're not good enough. There are areas where they're sorely lacking in quality um, and they're in real trouble. They are in real trouble. If you look at their fixtures coming up, Newcastle are too strong for them. Defensively, they're well-organised. You and I saw them today. They've got to go to Palace, where P- Palace are a better side, more fluid, more potent in front of goal. And then they go to West Ham side that are chasing the top four and are really, really tough. I can't see in their next five games where their points are coming from. Man United and Liverpool after that. Um, I can't see where their points are coming from. And yeah, they're in real trouble.
3: Jason Cundy on the sports bar has suggested, Trevor, that Frank Lampard was appointed with one eye on the championship next season in terms of a manager capable of bringing Everton back up. A, he hasn't proved that because he didn't take Derby into the Premier League. B, that can't be the case, can it? Because it would be a financial disaster if Everton were relegated from the Premier League. They're in danger of being punished for breaking financial fair play regulations anyway. I mean, that would be a first to to be fined and maybe deducted points over your FFP issues and relegated in the same season.
0: Yeah, it's been an absolute awful season. Um, I've got to say for Everton, um, I don't quite agree um, with what Jason said. I believe Frank was brought in there at a time where there was jeopardy, but they weren't this kind of jeopardy because the way they've not picked up points over the last few games and other clubs around them have, and this is what I was going going to say on top of what Darren said, you know, it's it's all right talking about Newcastle and Brentford. I'm looking at Leeds. I watched Leeds at Leicester last week and Jesse Marshall's got them working in units. And if they start working in units, they're a good team anyway. They're a fit team. They start working in units. They're going to get some results together like we've seen today. Watford, I've got a forward line. They've got Roy working there, trying to work their units to stop them conceding. They're going to start picking up points, I believe, because when you bring Sarr into that equation, with their forward free, they're a threat. I've seen them play against Aston Villa and they did a fantastic job there. And then you look at Burnley and Sean Dyke, she's done this season after season where the boys never down tools and they'll go to the end. So going on that basis, and, and you know, just adding to that, Brentford, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that Ericsson... And uh, Tony, are absolutely, hand in glove. So that's going to produce goals, and they, I think, they'll be safe. So, you know, you're talking Everton Leeds, I don't think will get dragged into it. Watford, I think, I think they could go. I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't please me to say this because it, obviously it's an f- absolute institution, Everton Football Club. But I actually feel they could go, and and that would be an absolute disgrace. Con- considering the amount of money, as Darren said, six hundred million over the last four or five years, it's an absolute joke.
3: I'm sure when they came off the pitch, having suffered that defeat, the last thing they would have wanted to hear about, as you say, was wins uh, for two of their relegation rivals. Leeds to Norwich one was how it finished at Ellen Row. Really dramatic conclusion to that game. Jesse Marsh, uh, the newly appointed Leeds manager in the build up to kick off, said he wanted his players to show bravery and courage And I guess they did that because they conceded in stoppage time and then promptly went straight up the other end and won the game. I mean, that's a a tremendous show of character from Leeds.
2: They were always good players. We knew they were good players. We were just also very frustrated by the fact that they played so open and left themselves so vulnerable to so many other teams. But we knew they had quality. Their midfielders are playing for England um their attackers at Bamford when he's fit is good enough to play for England they've got such an entertaining front six it's just about if they can keep that stable door closed and now they're starting to do that and I think they'll climb away from the bottom four now they're good enough to do that and you can see as you were saying Trev it's about unit and they want to play as a unit for Jesse Marsh I can't see Everton playing as a unit for Frank Lampard
3: Trevor's already mentioned some of the poor officiating this weekend. There are a couple of big talking points in this game as well. Uh, First of all, was the decision by VAR to overturn a Norwich penalty correct? And was Patrick Bamford potentially offside for the early Rodrigo goal? Trevor?
2: I've not seen it. (laughs) Darren? Well, I'm looking at an image here and he does look to be offside. I've got to say, I mean, listen... I have seen just in general terms of a VAR, I, I I've seen what I can only term as arrogance in many, In many situations by officials who want us to disbelieve the evidence of our own eyes. Um, And there've been a lot of cases so far this season where that's been the case, um, last season where that's been the case. And I can see why Norwich should be very, very unhappy about that. Um, but, you know, sometimes you need a bit of luck. Trevor will tell you, sometimes you need a bit of luck and some bad decision making. Um, it isn't just about the quality. You can work hard, you can put in a shift, but sometimes you just need something to go your way. You know, there'll be plenty of times when it doesn't, but if it goes your way, you're going to take that opportunity to to get the breathing space that today's wind gives leads.
3: Yeah, no breathing space for Norwich. 17 points from their 29 games. is a pretty paltry return, in all honesty. They're five points adrift of Everton in 17th. And Watford now at level on points with the Toffees after a 2-1 victory away from home against Southampton. It was only the Hornets' second win in 18 matches. They've given themselves a chance. They've played more games than most of the teams down there, so I think it's going to be difficult. But Roy Hodgson, uh, Trevor after that victory pointed to what he called four killer home games. that They need to win them all to stand any chance of a relegation escape that I think would probably match what he achieved at Fulham uh, back in 2008 when they won four of their last five matches to stay up. The games in question, Everton, Leeds, Burnley and Brentford all still to vi- visit Vicarage Road. Have they got a chance?
0: Of course they've got a chance. <clears throat> I think when you've got a forward three or four players to choose from in that in that area of the pitch and you, you've got goals. So if you can get the right reaction from the players, if you're Roy Hodgson organising that group of players defensively out of possession, um, you've definitely got a chance. And when you look at them home games, you know, you're talking Leeds, they're down there, they could, you know, it's almost like a six-pointer. Brentford, um, Burnley, these are huge games and, you know, I think you you can't down tools because you you just can't do that in the Premier League. But you look at them home games, you know, the one against Leicester, um, you almost can like take it easy a little bit with Liverpool and just stop the situation which could occur if you went for it by getting hammered. So there's certain games against Liverpool and Manchester City where you might think, you know what, we've got no chance. Let's concentrate on these games, which mean more to the teams around us. And if we can win them, we've got a great chance of staying up. Two goals from
3: Cucho Hernandez, who seems to have found his shooting boots. Again, the first was uh, assisted by a mix-up in the Southampton defence. Mohamed El-Yanousi making a game with it with a goal late in the first half. But Watford uh, managing to hold out for the victory. Three defeats in a row now for streaky Southampton. A small matter of Manchester City in the FA Cup, live on TalkSport. Next weekend, Ralph Hasenhutl, Darren was unhappy with uh, the time-wasting tactics that Watford adopted, but why is it that Southampton seem to be one of these teams who go on long winning runs, catapult themselves in the top half of the table. I'm talking about Ralph Hasenhutl as a future Manchester United manager. And then they very quickly fall away.
2: Yeah, because the players have started believing in their own publicity. Uh, They've enjoyed seeing the adulation that they've been getting and it's gone to their heads. They've stopped working, stopped doing all the basics, Uh, all of the things that got them into a position where people were actually discussing them as potential European candidates uh, and they've started to fall away. And the one thing I know about teams managed by Roy Hodgson is that he's patient with them. He won't lose his head. He was talking to us last, week on, last weekend after the Watford game against Arsenal and Arsenal were time-wasting and Arsenal were doing all the stuff to kind of preserve the points and he was asked about that. He said, I'll never criticise the team for doing that because you can bet your boots we'd do it if we were in that situation and that's exactly what they did today and good on them because you make your own luck and that's what they did and Southampton didn't turn up actually they did turn up but they turned up expecting to win against a side with a poor defensive record and they came unstuck that season you mentioned Crook where Fulham stayed up I covered Roy Hodgson's Fulham I was a much younger reporter covering um,
3: you weren't that um, much younger (laughs)
2: Uh, harsh but fair Um, but I remember there was a game where they'd lost and Hodgson talked about standing in front of us reporters with tears in his eyes and how gutted he was that it was all looking so bleak and then they went to Manchester City and won and it was a fantastic win then I think they beat Portsmouth and Birmingham and Portsmouth that season finished 8th Daddy Murphy scored Fratton Park I seem to recall it was a brilliant brilliant Victory. It was in their last three games, but he stayed patient with them and he kept the faith. And I think he'll do that with them again. And there is nothing in those last three games, four games you mentioned that I don't think Watford could get the three points in and save themselves. Well, one team who seemed to have saved themselves already
3: are Brentford. Ivan Tony back among the goals after we downplayed his stats uh, in the podcast on Thursday. They beat Burnley by two goals, Neil, both scored uh, by their talisman up front. Is that just about job done now for Brentford, Trevor? You feel they'll be more than comfortable to stay up?
0: I do, yeah. I just, I, listen, I think it's a, a marriage um, made in heaven. When you bring in a... Pl- I mean, listen, to start with, Ivan Tony, the talisman of that football club, the talisman of the team, top goal scorer last season, top goal scorer this team, he's back in the squad. You know, he had a little bit of a, whatever it was, shenanigans out in Dubai where he might have lost a little bit of favour from some of the fans and some of the ownership. And then on the back of that, he picked up a little niggly injury, coincidentally. Anyway, I think he's been punished. He's back in the side. He's fresh, he's fit. He scored five goals in two games. And he's got a partner. Where he must be thinking, I have won the lottery here because Christian Eriksen is a world-class player. He's proved it for many a moon. And um, yeah, that, I think that's always going to be a, a, a chemistry that was always going to work out. So excited for Brentford! I'm sure the fans are excited, and and Natalie Sawyer, and I'm, I'm sure that Brentford are going to be fine. This there season.
3: was so there were so many great moments this weekend, and the, the pass from Eriksen for the the first goal for Tony was. Absolutely sensational. I put it on Twitter with a love heart emoji. I think that probably just about sums it up. Uh, Not too much love in the air, Darren, as far as Burnley are concerned. They did uh, have a good opportunity uh, through Maxwell Cornet in that game that he didn't take. (laughs) You've got the T-shirt. If they circle the drain long enough, eventually they'll fall down the plug hole. Is, Is this going to be the season when Burnley finally go down, despite all that we've been saying about Everton?
2: Well, it might well be because, I mean, listen, we know that of those four teams, they are the team that know how to fight. We don't know that to be the case about Everton. Uh, they've gone through too long uh, a losing streak punctuated with a couple of wins. Was it three wins in the Premier League, four wins in the Premier League since October? I mean, September actually is simply not good enough. I think as far as Burnley are concerned, they were starting to put it together and then they ran into a couple of the big teams. But I think as far as Burnley are concerned, they've been circling that drain for far too long and and their next few games are really tough. Manchester City, uh, they come up against and that could just give uh, Everton the opportunity to gain valuable ground on them and put them under even more pressure. I mean, they are away to Norwich, but then they are away to West Ham after that and that's going to be tough too. So yeah, I, I think this might be the season where it, it, it's all over for Burnley, and I'm—I I, I say that advisedly, obviously, because as I've just been saying, you never can tell with a relegation fight, but it's—it's t- it's looking tough now.
3: Well, it shows just how good a weekend it's been that we're this far into the podcast and we haven't mentioned the title race.
0: I thought he was going to say Sitter. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, Brighton nil Liverpool 2 got us underway on game day on Saturday uh, we've mentioned already it wasn't a particularly good weekend for VAR can either of you tell me Darren as a highly acclaimed journalist Trevor as a former England international someone who's played at the World Cup how on earth did Robert Sanchez manage to stay on and convince two officials the on-field referee and the VAR that he didn't deserve a red card it's
0: outrageous it's outrageous he must have been to the same charm school as Fernandinho because to get away for that, I mean, if that was a police officer, you're getting done for GBH. It was ridiculous. Um, yeah, I, listen, I, I don't know what the referees and the officials in the Stockley Park actually look at because if that's not a red card for, for being dangerous, out of control, reckless, I don't know what it is. But fair play to Liverpool, got the job done. Went to Brighton, which is, you know, it has been a difficult place to go to for anyone uh, with the football that they play and the possession that they have. I think it was the fourth top possession in the Premier League they they uh, have and to go there and do a professional job, not concede. And again, you know, you look at Diaz endearing himself to the Liverpool fans, absolute cut out the same cloth as what you want your Liverpool forwards to be like. And I think the Liverpool fans are absolutely delighted with that signing.
3: Can you defend the officials at all, Darren? I think Jurgen Klopp said afterwards that they were using clear and obvious to, to get themselves out of jail. But it, it, it was a clear and obvious error, wasn't it? There's, there's no two ways about it. It should have been a straight red card. It, it,
2: it should have been. I've, I've said to you many times, listen, some of these officials using VAR, um, What what? <laughs> very often they tend to back their mates who are uh, refereeing the game or they see stuff that we just can't see. Uh, The only thing I would say is this, and and, and I will try, if if you're asking me to try, I will say this. I think Sanchez goes out and tries to make himself big, Peter Schmeichel-like. He tries to put his arms out, he tries to worry Diaz out of it, and he doesn't reckon with Diaz showing the bravery that he did to keep going. I think he thinks Diaz is going to pull out of it and that he's not going to make contact with him. That's the only explanation I can give. I heard somebody say on the radio, his arms are in an unnatural position. He's a goalkeeper and the penalty box is his domain so that his arms cannot possibly be in, and legs cannot be in an unnatural position in the box. But I think he sees he's entitled to make himself as Big as possible in the hope that he will worry Diaz out of it, and he Diaz decides, "I'm not pulling out of this at all," and shows the kind of bravery that you want as a Liverpool football, as you want in any team, to be honest with you. Um, and he goes on to score that goal. That's the only thing I can think of.
3: Equally outrageous as that decision was the pass from Joel Matip to tee up Diaz. Uh, so,
0: for, did
2: you not agree? Did, did,
0: did
3: you not bring do, no, you agree? No, I agree. Or? I
0: agree with the fact that he tried to like, you know, um, scare him. And thought he's going to pull out because he's a huge man, isn't he? And Diaz is, what, five foot eight, you know, quite slight. And I think Liverpool fans will see the courage that he's shown there. So I actually agree and I think Liverpool fans will be, one, glad that he got Polak's, but two, they'll be delighted with his courage. You know, you look at Mane, you look at some top players who are forwards, sometimes you've got to take a hit, you know, to get that respect and to win your team a penalty. And yeah, he's certainly in that, in that bracket.
3: I've spoken to Robert Sanchez. He's a big, friendly giant. There's nothing to be scared of there. Oh,
0: no, of course not.
3: i tell you what would scare me, though, if I was a Liverpool fan, was Mo Salah scoring Liverpool's 2000th Premier League goal. Jurgen Klopp asked about his future, said, I quote, we cannot do much more. That was greeted, Darren, by laughing emojis on social media from <laughs> Salah's agents. Is this the beginning and the end for Mo Salah?
2: I don't think it is I still think he stays listen it's a job it's that you get an agent so that they can have the uncomfortable conversations trevor will tell you um your your agent will probably tell you crook but it's your agent's job to go in there and say I want this uh and his job is not to be popular certainly not with any fan base or whatever else that's why agents do have such a bad name because players sorry fans just want players to stay at the club or to be bought but agents want the value of what their player commands and week in week out on this very podcast we talk about Salah being among the best in the world and we lured him to the skies and now the boy wants to be I keep saying the boy the man wants to be paid what he is worth and I I don't have an issue with that at all um I hope he doesn't go, but if he does go, I wouldn't necessarily suggest the only way is down. I think he gets into the buying side. Uh, they couldn't afford him, could they? Why not? They're a huge club. And if he were to run his contract down, and the statistics suggest that players who go into their final year very seldom sign a new deal, because what difference does it make? And he is so good that you can't possibly leave him on the bench, so he's going to play regular first-team football, I think then he walks into the PSG side, he walks into the Bayern side, maybe even if Barcelona can find the money and they do have a magic money tree, as we know, they might even take him.
0: Can I just add on top of that, because when we talk about Salah, I do feel he's appreciated, but I don't think we appreciate him quite enough. He's missed four games due to injury in five seasons. He scored minimum 35 goals a season. And he's also one of the top creators for Liverpool. That is irreplaceable. So, if Liverpool don't come up with the goods, there is going to be an absolutely massive hole to fill on that right hand side once he's left. And listen, how many other wingers do you know that score that kind of goal ratio? So, yeah, listen, do everything you can to keep him in Liverpool because if you don't, this could be the end of an, a very successful era.
3: I will take issue with one thing you said there, Darren. You said that fans want to see players stay. There were quite a few fans of Trevor Sinclair's club that didn't necessarily uh, (laughs) (laughs) go along with that.
0: Name names. Name (laughs) names, you absolute
3: (laughs) Uh, Four defeats in a row now for Brighton. I have seen some messages on social media uh, from some Seagulls fans suggesting that
2: they could be dragged into the relegation battle. That won't happen, will it? No, it won't happen. They're too good. Um, They don't lose many games. They draw a lot of games. Um, I think in the summer, they've got to make a striker a priority because if they've got someone to finish off the chances they get in games, they'll be mid-table easily. They would possibly have even pushed into the European places if they had a prolific striker. They've got to prioritise one in the summer, but no, they're too good to be drawn into the dogfight at the bottom.
3: Uh, Liverpool just three points behind Manchester City now. They've played the same number of games. City go to Crystal Palace on Monday evening. No Cancelo, no Diaz for City either. Uh, Crystal Palace have had their say in title races in the not-too-distant pass, as Darren Lewis uh, will testify. And they have given Manchester City, Trevor, a bloody nose on a couple of occasions. Could they do it again and really blow this
0: title race wide open? Oh, you sound so enthusiastic. (laughs) <laughs> of course they could. Listen, they're a good team. Um, I've been impressed. Um, I think I said it a couple of weeks ago with the manager, Patrick Vieira. I think he's brought a great style of football to the football club. Or at least on the right hand side, I've mentioned him before. He's starting to get a little bit of traction with the media and, and with people realising how good he is. I think Gareth Southgate's under pressure to put him in the England squad um, because he's got dual nationality or possibly tri-nationality. Yeah, and he's keeping good players out of the team, but they're a good team. They play an attractive style of football. They've got key players. And um, yeah, listen, it's going to be a test. And they'll be up for the game. You know, Patrick knows the football club. He was once a player and a coach there. So you want, want to impress the hierarchy at Manchester City. But you want to do well for for, for the home fans and for, for Crystal Palace Football Club. So I think it's going to be a really entertaining game. You always get a good atmosphere there. And I'm really looking forward to the game. But Manchester City, you know... They, this is what they do. They've lost the game against Tottenham and then they'll go on a run now where you, you wouldn't be surprised if they didn't lose till the end of the season. So let's wait and see, but looking forward to the game.
3: Well, by the time Darren and I reconvene along with Sam Matterface on Thursday, Manchester City will either be three points clear, four points clear, or or potentially six points clear. Uh, once again, we will be back on Thursday, looking ahead to a busy weekend of Premier League and FA Cup quarterfinal action as well. Uh, thanks, Trevor and Darren, uh, for your contributions uh, to what, as I said, has been a, a brilliant week. Lots of uh, talking points. Football played and great goals scored as well. Thanks for your company.
0: That was way better than Sam. <laughs> way better than Sam. But we have you next week. <laughs>